Well, the crowd's a little smaller, but that's all right. Um, I want to congratulate all of y'all for hanging in there. And, you know, we made it through Revelation 1. It's all downhill from there. Okay, so we got uh, uh, Revelation 2 and 3 tonight. And as uh, people are uh, finishing filing in, let me pray for us. Um, You know, you can walk with your eyes open and pray at the same time. Um, Closing eyes is just... uh, something to help us focus. And so um, I'm going to close my eyes and try not to fall off the stage, and we'll, uh, we'll be in good shape. So let me pray. Lord, thanks for the privilege of uh, opening your word tonight and for having a chance to just take a deep breath from the busyness of the week and focus in on uh, you. And just thank you, Father, that uh, last week we got to uh, really take a hard look at, a good look at, the fact that your son is the uh, subject of Revelation 1 and all of Revelation, and that uh, while we hold um, uh, much of what we're going to be talking about loosely, uh, we put a stake in, in the ground on the fact that uh, he is indeed coming back. And so, uh, Father, just be with us tonight as we uh, open your word and take a look at your son's messages to his churches. So, Father, let it be something that we uh, don't just read as uh, idle words, but that we see and read, and in the words of Revelation 1-3, that we uh, heed or obey these words that you tell us for the churches. So be with us tonight, Father, in your Son's name, amen. All right, gang. Um, So, We're going to dive into uh, Revelation 2 and 3, but as we do, um, I can't remember last week if I talked a little bit about this photo. Um, When I took it, I was actually standing in the Garden of Gethsemane, and uh, you look across the way, and uh, this is the um, eastern wall, and they call this the eastern gate or the beautiful gate or the golden gate, and it is the gate that uh, um, Christ is to return through. Uh, to the city of Jerusalem after he comes on the Mount of Olives and walks across. You know, I've made that walk. It uh, takes about uh, five or ten minutes. It's not very far. And so, uh, um, you know, the uh, um, Arabs can read Scripture too, and they actually put a cemetery right there in front of that uh, um, wall uh, to keep it from being opened again. But somehow the Lord will work all that out. And um, one day, he'll walk through those gates, okay? And uh, um, one of the things I'm going to do each week is, uh, um, you know, um, uh, I've got a Twitter account. It's at B. Crotty, and uh, I've tried to tweet things about our study in Revelation. And so here was my tweet for the week. Many problems in the church today result from the neglect of Christ's instructions to the seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3. And as we start uh, looking at those instructions, um, these are instructions to actual physical churches that John knew back in that time. But at the same time, they are something that uh, has been pertinent for the church down through the span of history. And um, I guarantee you there are churches similar to the seven churches um, 
existing today, and they've existed throughout the time of history. And so that gives a relevance to uh, John's message and what is ultimately Jesus' message to the seven churches that uh, transcends time. Okay? Are you with me on that? This is something that, um, in fact, there's a school of thought that says that the seven churches represent the uh, development of the church, capital C church, down through the span of history. And, you know, that that could be what uh, the Lord intended. Uh, um, you know, um, you have to kind of stretch some uh, a little bit on that. But at the same time, it's clear that these types of churches have existed throughout the ages. There have been churches that have been willing to suffer for Christ. And there have been churches that have been on fire for Christ and faithful to make known his testimony. And there have been churches that have compromised their um, doctrinal purity. There have been churches that have tolerated evil within their midst. There have been churches that have been dead churches that once were alive but now are dead. And, you know, as I think about uh, uh, Revelation 2 and 3, you know, I think, you know, man, well, obviously, what is the church? Well, the church is nothing more than the collection of people. You know, Watermark is not a uh, building. Watermark is uh, all the people who attend it uh, and are members of it and support it and are part of that body, okay? And so, as go the people, so goes the church because the people are the church, you and I are the church as believers in Christ. And as I think through Revelation 2 and 3, I sit there and think, you know, man, I can be any one of these churches on a daily basis. Sometimes I compromise with the world, you know. Sometimes I'd rather have peace than take a stand for truth. Sometimes, you know, I tolerate uh, uh, things going on uh, in front of me that, I'm not willing to stand up and and take a stand for truth. And so I can be any one of these seven churches almost on a single day. That's kind of a scary thought. Um, But, you know, I I love this uh, um, quote is from Dr. John Walford. Let me read it again. I'll read you the full quote. I had to kind of, you know, do the Twitter thing on it to get it down to 140 characters. But what Dr. Walford said, and y'all... Um, how many of y'all know Dr. Walbert or know of him? A uh, few. Well, he was the president of Dallas Seminary and a great student of the Word. And uh, um, his real heart was for uh, teaching uh, the prophetic revelation of Scripture. And he, um, he, wrote, he wrote one of the leading um, commentaries on the book of Revelation. Okay? So... Um, Here's what he said again. Many of the problems and evils that exist in the church today are a direct outgrowth of the neglect of Christ's instructions to these seven churches. And so those of us who were in Estes Park, we heard Wagner teaching on 1 Thessalonians about, you know, what is the church? What is the church called to be? And you could do that same thing on these seven letters in Revelation 2 and 3, Uh, If you understand these letters, you'll understand what God is calling his church to be. And, you know, they all revolve around the sort of witness that the church has in front of a watching world. And rest assured, gang, everyone is watching. 
And they like it, nothing better than to see the church stumble. And, um, you know, they turn their head when the church is suffering. And so there is a watching world around us. Okay? And so we st- put a stake in the ground on the fact that Jesus is coming back and other things we hold loosely. But, you know, I'm here to tell you that the message to these seven churches is something that we need to seriously pay attention to. Okay? Um, so follow along on Twitter if you do a Twitter sort of thing. Here's our uh, faithful overview. And it's become um, made known to me that uh, a bunch of uh, my team uh, that's back here, I can't even see uh, where they are, but uh, uh, Nika and uh, Lisa Ricketts and um, Leah Vick, are y'all back there? And they have a team of volunteers that are greeting and uh, making the water available and uh, taking care of the ice cream and uh, desserts afterwards. And a lot of that team is not going to be here on July the 5th. And so I thought it only prudent for me to check with you guys to make sure how many of y'all are still going to be celebrating the 4th on the 5th. Okay, so how many of y'all, let me ask you a different way, how many of y'all are planning to be here on July the 5th? Okay, we're going to meet on July the 5th. Okay, so, um, and on July the 5th, we'll be talking about the judgments. And, you know, you want to talk about the rocket's red glare and fireworks, uh, uh, stay tuned for uh, the judgments, okay? Because that will put any uh, 4th of July displayed to shame. And then the um, next week after that, we'll talk about uh, um, the second coming in the millennium in uh, Revelation 17 through 20. In the last week, uh, we will have made it to heaven. And that will be pretty fun, Okay? Um, who knows? Maybe literally. You never know. All right, so it's time for that favorite part of this class to me, where we play Revelation or Revelation. Okay, how many were not here last week? Okay, a bunch. All right, well, thanks for being here. Okay, so this is a game the whole family can play. Okay, and so I'm going to put up a question, and uh, um, it's going to be about the book of Revelation. And if you answer it correctly, then I'm going to take your name because uh, we ran out of our supply of books. And if you didn't get one from last week, I promised you, uh, Leah is sitting in the back. See Leah, and we will get your name. And if you um, get a book this week for answering bravely and correctly on our Revelation or Revelation, um, then I'll call out your name, and Lisa will take your name, and we'll have those books next week. But... If you don't answer it correctly, then you're going to have to stand up and speak up loudly and reveal something about yourself. Okay? It's a fun game. All right? You know, we're all about authenticity and transparency and all those good watermark words. So let's go. All right. So our first question is, and it's an easy one, which of the seven churches of Revelation do not receive a commendation? Okay, here's a hand I saw first. Laodicea um, did um, not receive a commendation. You are correct, sir. And your name is? Ben. Tell me the last name. Faulkner? Ben Faulkner, Leah. One book, okay? All right, next question. I told you these were easy. 
Okay, so the next question uh, um, has um, multiple churches. So which of the seven churches did not receive a rebuke? Okay, back in the back. Is that you, Dave? Smyrna did not receive a uh, rebuke. That's Dave Liner who answered that one. Don't tell me I'm going to um, get whiffed here tonight. Yes, sir. Phil, there you go. Another one in your name. Oh, Jonathan, I can't even see you back there. Uh, way to go, buddy. Well done. This guy, besides being an ace revelation answerer, he, is, uh, uh, he conquered the uh, golf course in uh, Estes Park. Uh, the boys got some game. Uh, it was impressive to watch. Okay, so, all right, the last one. A little harder now. What is something similar about Paul's New Testament letters and John's letters in Revelation 2 and 3? Hmm. A little tougher, huh? Come on, go for it. Yes, ma'am. Okay. And how many churches did John write to? How many? Seven. And how many different churches did Paul write to? You are a winner. <laughs> Way to go. And, and your name is? Gwen Luann. And what's the last name? Um, did you hear that, Leah? Okay, they got it. All right. Hey, well done. I, we, we've got no revelation tonight. I, I hate that. I'm going to make them tougher next week. All right? So um, both John and Paul wrote to seven churches. Okay? And if you think through, um, Paul wrote letters to uh, churches in Rome, Corinth, Galatians, uh, uh, or Galatia, Ephesus, Philippi, and Colossae. All right. This one isn't on a slide, but if you can answer it, what city that received a revelation letter is close to Colossae? Any takers? This is bonus jeopardy. All right. Do I have to stand up? Yes, sir, you do. I'll roll the dice and say Sardis. That is wrong. Thank you very much for playing. <laughs> stand up. Uh, you did. Way to go, buddy. All right. All right. We'll let you think, and we'll. Does anybody else have an answer? Because we could get a queue of people lined up to. Okay. Anybody else want to tackle that? What's near Colossae? Oh, you. Hmm. Uh, that is wrong. You're number two. Thank you, sir. That's right. Now we're rolling. Okay, in the back. Pergamum is wrong. Thank you. We've got three. <laughs> Y'all be thinking. All right. Who wants to play double jeopardy? All right. Th there are only four left. Laodicea. Laodicea. Okay. Laodicea and Colossae are uh, close together. And in fact, uh, Laodicea is mentioned in the book of Colossians a couple of times. Okay. All right. So Richard, go first. All right. I love it. He's a rock star. Well done. And w when was that? Oh, gosh. That was uh, it would have been about 1992. 
So just a couple of weeks ago. Very nice. I like it. Are you still an Aerosmith fan? Uh, I still listen to him. I break out the vinyl and listen to him. Ah, there you go. Uh, a true fan. All right, next. Going skydiving, I like that, you know? Um, come hear Revelation taught, go skydiving. Either one of them, you're taking your life into your hands, all right? Okay, in, in the back. Okay, wait, I, I got to get closer. That sounds like fun. <laughs> Okay, you've been interviewed by. Awesome. And a movie. We got a rock star and a movie star. Talladega Nights. All right, I like it. Okay, and so what? What was your favorite interview? There you go. Um, and not only are you a movie star, but you're smart to be um, saving gas on uh, driving a motorcycle. I like it. But be careful, buddy. It's dangerous on those things. All right. Okay, so last week, one of the things we did was uh, um, we went over uh, the timeline of Daniel's 70 weeks. Okay? And so... How many got that down pat and are ready to stand up and share that with the crowd? Okay, maybe we ought to go over it again. Um, but I know one, at least one out there um, can do this. Uh, Brittany, are you out there? Yes, she is, right here in front. Okay, and so Brittany went home and explained it to the rest of the family. A- am I embarrassing you thoroughly now? Stand up for a second. I'll really embarrass you. This is Brittany Bundren. She is the, uh, um, she, she mans the con at Watermark, okay? She's right there on the eighth floor, and nothing happens without uh, Brittany uh, knowing about it or allowing it to happen. So, um, Brittany, okay, share with us one thing that you learned about Daniel's 70 weeks. That we're in the church age? Okay. All right, so um, if you've got your Bible, open it up to uh, Daniel 9. And we're going to just take a couple of seconds and, and just run through this. So it's important that uh, you get this, you know. Um, there's no cost for this extra Daniel you're learning. And so... Uh, if you'll turn to Daniel 9:24, we're just going to read through that right quick together. Okay? It says, "70 weeks are decreed for your people in your holy city to do what? To finish uh, the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit." and to anoint a most holy place. Okay, how many of you think that we have brought in everlasting righteousness and Daniel's done? Yeah, me neither. Okay, so I think this is talking about something that's not yet happened. So 70 weeks there. And uh, you can see if you look back in 9, 
the first part of 9, uh, um, he's talking about, uh, um, he's been reading in Jeremiah, this is in verse 2, and uh, uh, where Jeremiah prophesied that, um, no, Daniel chapter 9, Daniel 9, sorry. Okay, if you're in Revelation 9, uh, you're in the midst of the uh, trumpet judgments, and that probably doesn't look anything like this. Okay, so uh, Daniel 9, and so um, Jeremiah prophesied that uh, um, Israel would be in captivity for 70 years. And so we're talking about years here, and literally the Hebrew there is 77s. And the scholars think that the sevens refer to weeks of years, okay? And then reading on uh, in uh, Daniel 9, 25. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for 62 weeks it shall be built again with squares and moat, uh, but in a troubled time, okay? And so if you go back up here to our handy-dandy chart, you know, we have uh, started the clock running on the 69 weeks, the 7 plus 62, uh, right here in 444 B.C. with Artaxerxes' decree to rebuild the city of uh, Jerusalem, a decree he gave to Nehemiah, and you can read about that in Nehemiah 2, 5 through 8, okay? And so, you know, it says... Um, let's see, to the coming of an anointed one. I think that's a reference to the coming of Christ. And uh, scholars will run that up to uh, AD 33 with the triumphal entry. You can see the reference there to Daniel uh, 9.26. And then reading on in Daniel. And after 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. Okay, I think that's a reference to the crucifixion of Christ. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Uh, an event, I think, that occurred in uh, AD 70 when Rome destroyed uh, Jerusalem. And its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. And then it says, desolations are decreed. And then in 927, we, um, we've had an interruption. Um, I call it the great parenthesis of history. The church age that we're in right now between the uh, crucifixion and the removal of the church at the event called the rapture, okay? Uh, that's one of the terms we talked about last week, okay? And so um, in verse 27, we see the clock start for the tribulation period, you know, that seven-year period at the uh, um, end of the age that will be a time uh, unlike any other on earth. And, you know, one of the things that uh, um, as you're looking through this, nothing in history up to this point in time matches up with the judgments of Revelation. And so it's one of the reasons that we can have confidence that these things have not already occurred and that they're yet to be uh, happening in the future. Okay, and then uh, back to Daniel 9.27, and he... I think that he is a reference to uh, the prince who is to come and a reference to the Antichrist. She'll make a strong covenant with many. I think that's a reference to Israel for one week. And that one week is the seven years. Remember, it's a week of years. That's the um, one week. That's the seven years of the tribulation. Okay? And so you see the church is removed up here. 
And uh, uh, then the clock really starts with the peace treaty uh, with Israel. And then we have the seven-year tribulation period here. And uh, right in the middle of it, we have the um, erection of the abomination of desolation. And reading on, let's see, in verse 27, let me start that again. And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. And for half of the week, he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. I think the Jews are going to um, rebuild their temple. They're going to start the sacrificial system again. And uh, the Antichrist will put an end to that halfway through the tribulation. This is also spoken of by Christ. And in fact, he references the prophet Daniel when he speaks of it. Uh, and it occurs in the Olivet Discourse in uh, Matthew 24. Uh, check Matthew 24:15. Okay, and uh, um, he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering, and on the wing of abomination shall come who, one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. And this uh, abomination of desolations, I think, likely will be uh, some sort of statue erected in the holy place. And uh, instead of uh, seeking peace with Israel, the Antichrist at that point will turn and require that the people of the world worship him. Okay? I'm not making this up. This, uh, you, uh, a movie uh, writer couldn't write this script. Um, this is something that, you know, you kind of scratch your head and go, you know, man, do I really believe that that's going to happen? And I'm here to say, I believe that it's going to happen. It may not happen exactly like I'm telling you, but Christ is going to come back. And, you know, we have confidence that Jesus himself has spoken of this and given affirmation to what the prophet Daniel uh, has said. And so it's important for us to understand this timeline so that we can understand and have a framework, a context for understanding the book of Revelation. And remember, uh, those of you who were here last week, one of the things I talked about is the most influential book for uh, the composition of Daniel is the... Uh, I'm sorry, for the, for the book of Revelation is Daniel. Uh, Daniel 7, for example, alone is alluded to at least 31 times in the book of Revelation. So you've got to know your Old Testament to understand ultimately and fully uh, what's going on in the book of Revelation. Okay? How are we doing on that? Feel like you got it? Yes, sir. Four hundred and eighty-three years that uh, occurred from uh, 444 B.C. and was finished by uh, A.D. 33. If you want to get into the how they calculate this, uh, one of the things I think they do is they use a 360-day year instead of a 365-day year because that's the way that the Jews um, viewed the calendar, Okay. There's a book written by Dr. Harold Honer, who was head of uh, uh, the Greek department at Dallas Seminary, called The uh, uh, Chronological Aspects of the Life of Christ. I had it up here last week, but I didn't bring it this week. But it's a great look at one uh, guy's efforts to calculate, you know, how all this works together, and it's pretty fascinating. Okay? All right, so 69 weeks uh, uh, end at the cross. We have a big parenthesis that's in between. And then we start up the last week, that's the seven years of the tribulation period, that will start with the rapture, 
No, it'll start with the covenant that the Antichrist uh, um, enters into with the nation of Israel. Okay? All right, how are we doing on that? You're, let me just say you're going to see this chart again because at the end of this five-week period, I think you will get this chart and it will really help you be able to put together what's happening in uh, uh, the book of Revelation. Yes, ma'am. Yes, I think the rapture will actually be before the peace treaty. Um, that may well be one of the triggering events that helps the Antichrist be able to enter into this treaty with Israel. Okay, We're not exactly sure what the timing is uh, going to look like, but I, I believe, I firmly believe that the rapture will occur before the peace treaty. Okay? All right, let's keep moving. Yes, ma'am. You know, it's hard to say. You know, all we can do is, uh, you know, watch the news and uh, keep our Bibles open and, uh, um, you know, look for uh, indications of uh, things that match up with what's happening in Scripture. So the, ch- the answer is, I just don't know. The question was, uh, will we know, uh, will, you know, those who are alive uh, right at the time of the rapture, do you think we'll know who the Antichrist is before the church is actually removed? And the short answer is, I just don't know. Okay? All right, let's keep rolling. All right. Here's a great quote, and here's a resource that y'all need to know about, Okay? Um, this is from uh, Dr. Tom Constable, uh, who note, he, he has notes on every book of the Bible. And um, if you see something up here that looks suspiciously like something that Dr. Constable said, I'm sure he copied it from me, not the other way around, okay? Um, but I use soniclight.com a ton. And you see right up here um, the little... Um, tab for study notes, you can click on that and up will pop a grid with notes um, where you can click on the link to any particular book and you'll be able to see a PDF of all his notes on that particular book. And I highly recommend this site. You have a question on a passage of scripture, go check Dr. Constable's notes. Uh, I guarantee you everyone at Dallas Seminary is doing exactly that same thing. Right, Nika? Big thumbs up on that. Um, you know, people take Dr. Constable's class just to get his notes, and now he has put the notes on the Internet for free. Okay, so it's a great resource. And he says, A revelation of the end of history is not given for the satisfaction of curiosity, but to inspire living in accordance with the reality uh, unveiled. To inspire living in accordance with the reality unveiled. And so, you know, this book is to give us hope. We know who wins. We've read the end of the book, and we know who wins, okay? And the question is, are we going to be on the right side? And we can only do that by trusting in Christ. We can only do that by putting your trust in Christ, okay? 
All right, back to our key verse, Revelation 1.19. John's told, therefore, to write. Remember, it's one of, uh, uh, I think there are 12 instructions to him to write throughout the book. The things you've seen, and we've said, hey, that matches up with what John saw, the vision of Christ, in Revelation 1. And then he was to write the things which are, and that's what we'll talk about tonight in Revelation 2 and 3. And then finally, the things which will take place after this is what the Greek literally says. And um, you see in chapter 4, verse 1, the phrase that begins chapter 4 is after this. And I think with chapter 4, we start looking at the future. Okay? Important verse for you to know. Revelation one nineteen. All right. As we look at the uh, um, churches, here's a map where you can see the seven churches that look like a little spear point right here. Can you see that? Um, John was based at Ephesus. He's actually exiled on the island of Patmos when he's writing this. But you can see how someone could have just traveled uh, and likely um, the person carrying these, uh, this letter would have gone from Ephesus to Smyrna to Pergamum to Thyatira to Sardis to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. And that's the order that they appear in the book. You guys on this side see that as well? It's just like a little spear point right here. And you could see how John may have ridden that circuit in visiting each one of the uh, uh, seven churches. Okay? And so as we look at these uh, uh, letters to the seven churches, um, here's a little grid that uh, you could use to compare and contrast these letters. Okay? And so tonight, I'm going to give you the way I would fill in each of those. But, you know, that's no help to you, really. Okay? That, you know, may, yeah, maybe that gives you the answer. But if y'all will do that on your own and use this to check what you've done, uh, it's not hard to do, and you can do this on your own, and then it's your own work. And that's what cements it as being part of your own uh, relationship with Christ and your own walk with him. Okay, And so each of the letters um, reveals something about the person of Christ. And remember uh, last week we talked that um, most of these come just straight out of the vision of Christ that John has in Revelation 1. Okay? And uh, um, let me read something about that. The titles of Jesus Christ found in the introductions to six of the seven messages in chapters 2 and 3 are drawn largely from this vision of Revelation 1, uh, 12 through 20 and its descriptive phrases. Only the message to Laodicea in Revelation three fourteen to 22 is devoid of one of these. And actually, one of the titles is used in uh, a couple of the messages. Uh, the appearance of Christ in this vision is designed to emphasize aspects of his nature that are most relevant to the needs and circumstances of the seven churches who are the primary recipients of the book. Okay, so that depiction of Christ is important. Don't just skip over that because the way he is depicted uh, matches up with the need of that particular church. Okay? And remember, you know, we can be any one of these churches uh, and it will match up with our need as well. 
Okay? And so we're going to compare and contrast these on the basis of the depiction of Christ, the commendation that uh, is given to uh, uh, just about all of them, the rebuke that's given to all but two, the exhortation that each receives, and then finally, um, the promise that each one receives. And these promises, now it's important to remember that these promises are not for a special group of Christians called conquerors. Okay? Instead, they're really a description of what the normal Christian life should be. They're for you and me. You and me. Um, and so, First um, John 5, 5 asks, Who is it that overcomes? It's the same word that's used in uh, uh, Revelation 2 and 3. Uh, who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? The overcomer, the one who conquers, is the one who puts his trust in Christ. And so these promises that, you know, these grand and glorious promises that are the uh, climax of each one of these letters are things that are promised for you and me as believers in Christ. And we'll talk about that as we go. Okay, so are you with me on that? So five things that you can use to compare and contrast these letters. So let's dive in. Uh, Ephesus. Uh, the word means desirable, and uh, um, Ephesus was a leading seaport, a commercial center, and the capital of the Roman province of Asia Minor. Paul visited Ephesus on his second missionary journey. You can read about that in Acts 18, 19 through 21. And he returned to it and stayed for two years plus on his third missionary journey to establish a church there, Okay. So the uh, Ephesian church is one that he established and then ultimately wrote a letter to. You can read about that in Acts 19. In fact, his teaching sparks a riot uh, in Ephesus. And it's interesting to note that um, in Acts 19, it says that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord during this time. And um, uh, scholars estimate that there were some 500-plus urban communities during that time. And think about that. All of Asia heard the message of Christ through Paul's evangelizing efforts and the evangelizing efforts of the church at Ephesus, okay, during this time frame. And so Ephesus was an evangelizing church. You know, Wagner talks about this, and this is something that's going to be true for each one of these letters because um, as goes the church in giving an account for the hope that's within it, um, being willing to stand up and testify to their relationship with Christ, sharing the gospel, sharing the good news about Christ with a watching world, you know, you can take the spiritual temperature of any church, including this church, on the basis of how effective its members, its people are, in telling the world about Christ. And we're going to see that throughout Okay, And so this is the background for the Ephesian church. It was out evangelizing the world. Pretty amazing uh, statement that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord through the efforts of this church. Uh, Timothy labored there. You can read about that in 1 Timothy 1.3, as had uh, the Apostle John. It was the largest city in Asia Minor, and uh, one scholar called it the vanity fair of the ancient world. It was the site of one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, the Temple of Diana, 
or it was uh, she was also called Artemis. Okay, um, it was the recipient of at least four New Testament books. Um, you know, uh, the book of Ephesians was sent to that church. Uh, First and Second Timothy were sent there when Timothy was uh, uh, actually um, pastoring there, and also the book of Revelation. And possibly four others may have been sent there. The Gospel of John and John's three letters may well have been sent to the Ephesian church. Uh, Paul wrote 1 Corinthians from Ephesus. And so it was a very important city in the early history of the church. Okay? And so what does uh, the letter reveal about Christ? Well, it says he has a firm grasp on the seven stars in his right hand, and he walks among the seven golden lampstands. And who remembers from last week or from your reading in Revelation 1 what the lampstands represent? Churches, right. Okay? And if you look um, in your Bible at Revelation 1.20, you see that John actually interprets for us what the uh, stars represent and what the lampstands represent. And we'll see that throughout the, the book of Revelation that how... Um, um, many of the symbols that John uses are, in fact, um, um, revealed either in the same place or later uh, in the book. Okay, so watch for that. And remember that the symbols that uh, he uses also may be symbols that were used in the Old Testament. John knew his Old Testament. And these symbols are designed not to hide the truth, but to reveal it. And so the lampstands represent the churches, okay? And so what's the purpose of a lampstand? To give light, right, okay? And so what's the church to be? It's the, uh, sharing the light of Christ with a dark world, okay? And so the picture of the church as a lampstand, man, that fits. Um, they're commended for a lot of stuff, Works, toil, patient endurance, don't tolerate evil. They've tested and revealed false apostles. They're enduring much for the sake of Christ, and they haven't grown weary. Uh, they hate the Nicolaitans' uh, deeds. And notice when, uh, did you all notice that? It says, um, and Christ also hates. It doesn't say that he hates the Nicolaitans. It says he hates their deeds. Okay? That's important to note. Um, the rebuke, and this is devastating. Okay, so when Paul's writing about, uh, um, uh, when he's writing to the Ephesian church in the book of Ephesians, he uses the word love at least 15 times, more than any other of his uh, uh, letters except 1 Corinthians. Okay, and so love was something that characterized this church, their love for others, their love for the Lord, etc., and uh, uh, so for them to have departed from their first love, um, you know, scholars debate on, well, does that mean that they lost their love for Christ or whatnot? What I think it means is that they lost their love, their passion for telling others about Christ. And I think that's one of the things you're going to see in each of these churches. As goes the church's witness to the world, so goes that church. Okay. So uh, what a devastating rebuke that they lost, they walked away from their first love that had been so important to them, their relationship with Christ and telling others about him. Uh, They're exhorted to remember. They're exhorted to do three things. They're exhorted to remember. 
to repent and to do, to do the deeds they did at first. And those deeds were going out and sharing Christ with all of Asia, being willing to be that testimony to the world, okay? And the promise they received is to eat uh, of the tree of life in the paradise of God. And let me expand on these things uh, uh, a little bit. You know, despite the fact that this rebuke of having left their first love, there's still hope for um, that church. There was hope for that church, and there's hope for us today. Um, It made me think of 2 Timothy 2.13 that says that if we're faithless, he remains faithful. Uh, For he can't deny himself. And he's full of love, holding us in his strong right hand even when we turn away. 1 John uh, 4.19 says that we love, why? Because he first loved us. And so if um, Ephesians 1.15 tells us that love characterized this church in its early days, we see in the very last verse of the book of Ephesians, Ephesians uh, 6.24, we see the words, Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. The Greek word there means undying. And so Paul wrote this, and, you know, no more than 30 years later or so, uh, this undying love that Paul called this church to uh, had already grown cold. And so how can we not let that happen to us? Where will you be 30 years from now in your walk with Christ? Where will this church be? Where will this church be in 30 years? Well, if we're still out there telling others about Christ and seeking to walk in a manner worthy of our calling and seeking to be um, biblically uh, accurate and correct in the way that we handle the word of truth, then I think God will continue to use this church as a witness to a watching world. But if we're like the Ephesian church and we stop telling others about him, you know, this lampstand, um, like the Ephesian lampstand, can be removed. It's a sober warning to us. And when he talks about removing your lampstand, uh, I think he simply means there that uh, um, remove the church as a testimony for Christ. And ultimately that happened to the Ephesian church. Okay? So apparently after the time that Paul, uh, I'm sorry, that John wrote this, the church made recovery. And in 431, it hosted the third general council for the uh, Christian church as a whole. And so it was held up as being a place that uh, the entire church would gather for these important church councils, okay? But by the, uh, uh, shortly after the, uh, after the 5th century, Ephesus as a city declined, And by the 14th century, no more Ephesus. In fact, you can see this is um, John's tomb in Ephesus. And, you know, it's surrounded by nothing but ruins because the church had been removed. The promise to eat of the uh, tree of life, and this is one of the things you can track as we go through. You'll see that in Revelation 22, 14, that promise is fulfilled. 
Okay, so pay attention to these promises and look for, as we read through the rest of Revelation, about um, where and how these um, promises are fulfilled. And so for Ephesus, you know, I've tried to come up with something to help you remember, and uh, it is hard to work with an E word, okay? Um, But I think for Ephesus, I think erring Ephesus that's left its first love. Okay, and that's the Ephesian church. Six more to go. The next one is Smyrna. Okay, the word actually means uh, bitter. Okay, and from it we get the word myrrh, and we'll talk about that in uh, just a second. Um, Smyrna was a seaport on the Aegean Sea about 40 miles north of Ephesus. Uh, Late in the first century when John was writing this, it was a large Wealthy city with a population of about 100,000, and it actually still exists as a city today. It's called uh, Izmir, uh, with a population of about 200,000. Um, the word uh, for Smyrna comes from uh, the same root as the word for myrrh. Remember, that's, uh, myrrh was one of the gifts that the wise uh, men brought to Christ, and uh, myrrh was a perfume. And, you know, when you think about the Smyrna church and its faithfulness in suffering, you can think of it as a sweet perfume to God. And so um, what do we see about uh, Christ here? Well, we see that he is revealed as the first and the last. And up there you can see uh, uh, 117 is where that phrase appears in the uh, Revelation 1. He's uh, one who died and came to life. And think about that for a suffering church. What gives us... Um, the greatest hope is the fact that uh, the fact of the resurrection that Christ died, but he came back to life. And he's promised us, if we'll put our trust in him, that uh, even though we die, we'll live forever. Okay? And so um, you can see how the depiction of Christ here would give a suffering church one that actually was having to confront whether it was going to be faithful even to the point of death, uh, it would give them hope and ultimate confidence to be able to do that. Um, the commendation was that they're enduring tribulation and poverty and slander, but then it says they're rich. And you know, uh, in a little bit, we're going to see a church that thinks it's rich, but really it's poor. And so Smyrna is a great example of one uh, who was living in the word uh, in the Greek for poverty is just abject-based poverty. And yet uh, Christ says they're rich because of their spiritual uh, richness. No rebuke for Smyrna, but they're exhorted not to fear what they're about to suffer and to be faithful even unto death. And so, gang... Death is not the end for us if we put our trust in Christ. And so we can face death with confidence that he has conquered death. The, um, what promise would you want uh, more so than the crown of life for the one who overcomes, for the uh, one who conquers? And the promise that um, they will not be hurt by the second death. And we'll talk about the second death. So let's talk a little bit more about Smyrna. The two exhortations to stop being afraid and be faithful uh, even unto death. And you know, in this, Christ is our example. First Peter two nineteen through twenty three uh, gives us some great things to think about. First uh, Peter two twenty one says, "For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, 
leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. You want to be like Christ? Will you be prepared to suffer? When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. This is uh, verse 23 in 1 Peter 2. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges rightly. And so this depiction of Christ gives us eternal hope that he's conquered death and gives us the ultimate uh, confidence that neither physical death nor even the second death um, will harm us. And we see that fulfilled in Revelation 20, verse 6, when we'll be talking about uh, the great white throne judgment and uh, the millennium and, and that sort of thing. And so for Smyrna, think suffering Smyrna. It's the suffering church. And how many of us want to sign up for that gig? Well, not me especially. Not me especially. And yet Christ is our example there. And there may be a time when we as a church suffer for the testimony of Christ. And are we going to be willing to do that? Well, if we will trust ourselves to the one who has overcome death, then we can do that with confidence, regardless of the outcome. Suffering Smyrna. Airing Ephesus, suffering Smyrna. All right, the next one, Pergamum. Pergamum uh, uh, is actually the modern city of Bergama in Turkey, and it uh, lies about uh, 55 miles north of Smyrna and inland a few miles from the Aegean coast. And the meaning of the name is citadel. And the town was noteworthy for uh, at least three reasons. Uh, it was a center for many pagan religious cults and emperor worship. Uh, there was more intense than in any of the surrounding cities. Um, it boasted a university with a large library. In fact, uh, I think that uh, Anthony gave this library to Cleopatra as a uh, present. It was more than 200,000 volumes. And it, uh, not surprisingly, it was the leader and center of the production of parchment uh, that uh, these books were written on. And uh, this parchment was called uh, Pergamonina. Okay? Easy for you to say. Um, Pergamonina. Um, let's look at uh, the slide here. Christ is depicted as the one who has the sharp two-edged sword. It's a picture of Christ as judge. And that sword, I think, represents the word. You know, we're told in Hebrews 4.12 that the word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. And it is our standard for uh, judgment. It is our standard for righteousness and um, determining uh, um, right from wrong. The commendation that they receive is that this church holds fast to the name of Christ and they don't deny their faith but they receive a rebuke because some of them within the church have been holding to the teaching of Balaam and the Nicolaitans, and we'll talk about that in just a second. They're exhorted to repent or Christ will make war against them with the sword of his mouth. And so this is obviously something that Christ takes so seriously that he is going to make war against it, okay? And we're going to see that false teaching is something that... Uh, um, causes Christ to uh, uh, do this. And if Christ is vigilant to uh, stamp out false teaching like that, we have got to be vigilant in the same respect. And these folks will receive three things, hidden manna, a white stone, 
in a new name. And we'll talk about those in uh, uh, just a second. Okay, so uh, Christ here is des- describes himself as the one who judges with his word. And the word separates believers from the world and uh, sinners from God. Maybe this is the double-edged quality it's talking about. Or perhaps one scholar said life and death are in view here. Um, Roman officials who had the right to carry this sword to make the judgment of life and death um, um, could make that determination in capital cases. And it's interesting to note that Pergamum was a city to which Rome had given the rare power of capital punishment, which is, you know, of course, symbolized by the sword. And so the Christians in Pergamum were uh, reminded that even though they lived under, under the rule of a world po- power, uh, they were citizens of another kingdom, a heavenly kingdom, whose king only needed the sword of his mouth. And the uh, uh, rebuke that they receive is that they were a compromising church. They were holding fast to the name of Christ, but permitting some to compromise with the world by following false teaching that Jesus both hates and will make war against. He takes that false teaching seriously. And this church receives three promises. Hidden manna, I think that's a picture of the benefit of fellowship with Christ. Uh, also a white stone. Um, scholars think of a couple of different possibilities for this. Uh, a white stone was sometimes given to the victors in games uh, for admission to a celebratory banquet. Think about uh, the church being uh, um, um, participating in the wedding feast of uh, the Lamb, which we'll read about in Revelation 19. But it is also used by jurors uh, to vote for acquittal in a, um, a trial. And the new name uh, given to the believer, uh, I think, represents his separation from the things of this world and his assurance of eternal salvation. And so the question we have to ask ourselves is, are we willing to compromise the truth of Scripture for getting along with the rest of the world? You know, peace at the cost of being true to the Word of God is not peace. And so we are called on as believers in Christ to be willing to speak the truth in love, but to stand on that truth, okay? To do so in a winsome way that causes people to uh, pay attention, but to not compromise that truth. John fifteen eighteen through 19 uh, says, If the world hates you, know that it hated uh, me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you were not of the world, I chose you out of the world. Therefore, the world hates you. And so, you know, gang, if we take a stand for Christ and stand on the truth of Scripture, you know, the world may hate us. But we know that in doing so, that we are going to uh, show allegiance to the one who is truth. And so for Pergamum... Think permissive Pergamum, the compromising church. Erring Ephesus, suffering Smyrna, permissive Pergamum. Okay, next church, Thyatira. The word means unweary sacrifice. And uh, um, some of the things we know about uh, Thyatira is that it was the smallest of the seven cities, but interestingly, it received the longest letter 
and one of the most severe. It was famous for its trade guilds and also for textiles, uh, especially the production of purple dye. If you look at Acts 16, you'll read about Lydia, who was from uh, Thyatira, and she was a seller of uh, purple goods. And we look at the slide here, and we see Christ depicted as the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and feet like burnished bronze, and he is one who searches mind and heart. You know, it's a picture of the piercing judgment of the Son of God. Their works, uh, love, faith, service, and patient endurance are commended. And, you know, um, up to this point, we've not seen any other church commended for its love. And even their latter works have exceeded the works that they did at first. So those are some pretty cool commendations that they receive. But the rebuke is uh, one where they are tolerating in their midst a Jezebel, and we'll talk about Jezebel, who's teaching Christ's servants to practice sexual immorality and also to uh, uh, eat food sacrificed to idols. They're exhorted to repent of Jezebel's work and to know that Christ will give to them according to their deeds or according to their works and to hold fast what they have until Christ returns. And... The promise they receive is that they will receive authority to rule, uh, authority over the nations, and they'll receive the morning star. And we'll talk about what the morning star is in just a second. Okay? So, pretty amazing. Uh, They're uh, commended for their works, their love, their faith, their service, and their patient endurance, and the fact that their works are increasing. And none of the three preceding uh, churches had been praised for their love. So who was this Jezebel? Anybody know who Jezebel was in the Old Testament? You don't have to reveal anything. Ahab's wife, right, good job. Um, You can read about uh, Jezebel in uh, 1 Kings 16 through 21. And uh, um, pay special attention to 1 Kings twenty-one twenty-five that says that there was none who sold himself to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord like Ahab, her husband, who was king of Israel. And then it says, whom Jezebel, his wife, incited. And so she was the power behind the throne with Ahab, uh, inciting Ahab to be worse than any previous king of Israel. <laughs> And um, Ahab and Jezebel led Israel into idolatry and immorality. Um, And this Jezebel within this church at Thyatira was having a similar influence, leading some into immorality and idolatry. And you know, it's interesting that just as, remember the uh, prophet Elijah then said, Hey, Lord, it's just me. I'm the only one left. And the Lord revealed to uh, Elijah that uh, uh, there were at least 7,000 who had not bowed their knee to Baal. And so just as there was a remnant in Elijah's day, there's also a remnant in the church at Thyatira. There was a faithful remnant within the church. And this is the first letter to actually single out uh, a remnant. We also have the first reference to Christ coming for uh, his church. And we see a promise that will rule, have authority over the nations. The word rule there really means to shepherd. And that's what um, the uh, um, task will be 
um, not to lord it over the people, but to shepherd them like a shepherd cares for his sheep. The morning star, I think, is a reference to Christ himself. You can uh, read that in uh, Revelation twenty-two sixteen. 16. Uh, it says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. And what a promise when he says you'll have the morning star. It means that we will have intimate fellowship and we'll be with Christ forever. Now, that is a promise. Um, John 14.3 says, And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself, that where I am you may also be. And 1 Thessalonians 4.16 says, Then we who are alive who are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And then this great promise, So we will be, always be with the Lord. Always be with the Lord. I think that's the meaning of the morning star, that we will have this relationship with Christ forever and be with him forever. Okay, and so when you think Thyatira, think tolerating Thyatira. They were tolerating in their midst someone who was um, teaching them the wrong way, teaching them to engage in practices that were abhorrent to God. Okay, tolerating Thyatira. Airing Ephesus, suffering Smyrna, permissive Pergamum, tolerating Thyatira. All right, somehow uh, I must have started preaching along here, so let's... Um, pick up the pace. Sardis, the name itself means remnant, and we're going to see that's important for this particular church. Uh, Sardis stood about 33 miles southeast of Thyatira on a major highway that led all the way to Sessa in the kingdom of Mesopotamia. It had been the capital of the ancient kingdom of Lydia, and it was famous for its military history, for jewelry, for dye, and for textiles. And because of its location on a steep hill, many people thought that the city was impregnable, kind of like this church thought it was impregnable. Uh, But um, it was conquered in 549 by Cyrus, um, Persian king. Uh, He found a secret path up the cliff. And uh, later Antiochus II, in about 218 B.C., conquered the city in the same way. Interestingly, it had a temple to Artemis or to Diana, in size uh, um, that equaled in size the famous Temple of Diana that uh, uh, we talked about earlier at Ephesus. However, this temple at Sardis was never finished. And that's also something we see about this church. And you can see it right up here. It talks about the works aren't complete in the sight of God. Okay? No city of Asia at that time showed such a contrast between past splendor and present decay as, the, uh, uh, as Sardis did. And uh, uh, one of the commentators said, you know, this, um, what happened to Sardis is not unlike what happens to ministries. That uh, They often go through four stages. Um, you start out with a person with a great vision, um, and then that becomes a movement. And then that movement becomes a machine. And then ultimately that machine becomes a monument. And they've lost, you know, um, what inspired that movement to begin with. 
man movement machine monument. And so Sardis is at the monument stage, and yet one of the things that's great about the letter to Sardis is that it still offers hope. Okay, so up here we see that Christ is depicted as uh, having the seven spirits of God, and that's important for us to understand, and the seven stars. He holds in his hands the messengers of the churches, the pastors of the churches. Uh, They're commended because a worthy few, a remnant um, remains that will walk with Christ. And the rebuke is that uh, even though they have the reputation of being alive, they're dead. The church is dead. And um, as I talked about just a minute ago, their works aren't complete in the sight of God, part of the rebuke. And so the exhortation is to wake up, to strengthen what remains, to remember what they'd received and heard, and then to keep it, to heed it, to obey it. And they're told to repent. And if they do that, then they'll be clothed in white garments. And we'll talk about that. Their name will never be blotted out of the book of life. And how about this? Christ will confess their name before the Father and angels. That's pretty amazing. Okay, so here we have a spiritually dead church. And so it's not an accident that Christ is depicted as having the seven spirits of God, which if you look at uh, Isaiah 11-2, you'll see that I think that's a reference to the sevenfold ministry of the Holy Spirit. And you know, John John 6-63, let me say that again, John 6-63 tells us that it's the Spirit that gives life. And so here Christ is depicted as having the Spirit because it brings life to dead people. You know, everybody sitting in this room who trusted in Christ at one point was spiritually dead. And if you've trusted in Christ, now the Spirit has brought life. And the same thing's true of this church, that he who has the seven spirits, he who has the Holy Spirit, this Spirit can give life back to this church at Sardis. Um, for white garments, take a look at uh, Revelation 19.8 and 19.14 for fulfillment. And you can read about the book of life in Revelation 21.27 uh, for fulfillment. And so the Spirit of God brings life to dead places, to dead people, to dead churches. And there's hope for Sardis because the Spirit can reinvigorate that church. For Sardis, think spiritless Sardis. Think remnant and remember that the Spirit gives life. All right, on to Philadelphia. And here we turn a little bit of a corner. You know, everybody knows what Philadelphia means. It means the city of brotherly love, which we see demonstrated by Philadelphia every time the Cowboys play them. Okay? Isn't that right? I met with a guy last week from Philadelphia, big Eagles fan, and he talked about how nice the people were in Dallas when he would go to the games all decked out in Philadelphia gear. And I said, well, buddy, let me ask you a question. So if I went up to uh, Philadelphia and went to an Eagles game with, when the Cowboys were there, would I be treated the same way? And he said, no, you'd be killed. <laughs> um, but this is a city of brotherly love, and here's where it comes from. Um, it, it, 
lies about 30 miles southeast, or it did, of uh, Sardis. And a king of Pergamum named Attalus II, who lived from 159 uh, to 138 B.C., founded the town. And uh, it, received his, uh, it received its name from his nickname, Philadelphus, or brother lover. Uh, apparently, he had a special devotion to his brother. And the city was the so-called gateway to Central Asia Minor because um, of uh, its splendor and whatnot. Um, it experienced earthquakes uh, from time to time. And because of that, uh, more of the population chose to live outside the city instead of inside it. In fact, the city itself was destroyed in AD 17 and uh, then subsequently rebuilt. And that's important as we uh, go through this. Okay? The uh, uh, Christ is depicted as the holy and true one who has the key of David and opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one's open. You can uh, see that's, I think, an allusion to Isaiah 22, 22. They're commended for their works and patient endurance. And if you look at that, that list is nearly as long as the list of which church? You remember? Um, Pergamum. No, I'm sorry, uh, uh, Thyatira. They were commended for their works, love, faith, service, and patient endurance. And over here in Philadelphia, we just see their works and patient endurance. Um, They kept Christ's word and have not denied his name. And this church, hallelujah, received no rebuke, and they were exhorted to hold fast to what they have. And then Christ will keep them from the hour of trial that's coming on the world. We'll talk about that. And he will make them pillars in God's temple. And you know, these folks had seen what happens in an earthquake, what happens to pillars and how they crumble. But they're given a promise that they will be pillars in God's temple. And they'll stand forever with him. And he's uh, written on them uh, God's name and the name of God's city and Christ's own new name. Okay, so let's talk about that. Um, Key of David, I think that's a uh, reference to the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant that uh, Christ will rule on the throne of David during the millennial kingdom. You can also check that out in uh, uh, Isaiah 22, 23, 23, where uh, Eliakim is um, said to have the uh, key of David. How about the term open and shut doors? You know, Paul used the term open door to describe opportunities for sharing the gospel and for uh, doing ministry, you know, which really fits here because this church uh, is commended for its faithful testimony and holding fast to the name of Christ, and I'm sure being willing to share it with those around it. Okay, Remember that each of these relates to the witness of the church to uh, uh, share the good news about Christ. And because of this faithfulness, the church at Philadelphia has promised that Christ will keep them from the hour of trial that's coming on the whole world. That's in Revelation 3.10. And to me, I think that's a clear reference to uh, the rapture. And we can take comfort that we're not designed for wrath, as uh, 1 Thessalonians 5.9 tells us. And we're promised here that we won't go through that hour of trial, which I think refers to the tribulation period. And the text, uh, it's important to note, says that the church will be delivered from it, not through it. 
And so I think that's an, an indication that uh, um, the church will be removed from the earth and will not go through the tribulation period. Um, pillar, I've talked about that a little bit, um, a permanent dwelling place in the temple of God, and it surely had to have special comfort for uh, the folks at Philadelphia after they had experienced and recovered from that devastating earthquake in A.D. 17. And so they'll stand when all else has fallen, and they'll stand permanently in the presence of God. And you know, I think you can see that fulfilled in Revelation 21.3, where it says that, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Now, how's that for a promise? Our God is going to dwell with us in eternity. That's a promise. And so for Philadelphia, think faithful Philadelphia. Erring Ephesus, uh, suffering Smyrna, permissive Pergamum, tolerating Thyatira, uh, spiritless Sardis, and faithful Philadelphia. All right, and the last church, Laodicea. Button your uh, chin straps here. Okay? It lay about uh, 40 miles southeast of Philadelphia and 90 miles east of Ephesus, near the city of, um, or the town of Colossae we've talked about. And as I mentioned earlier, um, it was uh, mentioned in the New Testament in Colossians 2.1 and 4.15. It was a wealthy town. It was known as a banking center. Um, it was known for its black wool, and it was known for its medical school that produced uh, a special eye salve. It was destroyed by an earthquake in AD 60 and was able to rebuild itself without any outside help. No federal help for uh, the city of Laodicea. It rebuilt itself. Pretty impressive. And, you know, that uh, event may have prompted a feeling of self-sufficiency that blinded the Laodiceans to their uh, true need. Okay, and so looking at this, uh, we see Christ depicted as the amen. It's the only use uh, of that term uh, in Scripture for Christ. He's depicted as the faithful and true witness, and he's also depicted as the beginning of God's creation. The commendation? None. And we'll see why. The rebuke, they're lukewarm works. They think they're rich, but they don't realize that they are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Tell us how you really feel, okay? Wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Their exhortation, they receive from Christ, um, to receive from Christ gold refined by fire, white garments, and eye salve so that they can see. So you can see where they thought they were strong, Christ says, hey, that's where you're weak. But it's also the place where I've got true uh, riches and things to offer you. And so the promise is fellowship with Christ. And how about this, sitting with Christ on his throne. And I make note up here that um, some commentators call Revelation the book of thrones. There are 47 mentions of the word throne in the book of Revelation. Okay. Um, when Christ is called the Amen, it indicates his sovereignty. 
and the certain fulfillment of his predictions and promises. Lukewarm. Well, the folks of Laodicea understood lukewarm because their city drinking water came from a spring that was six miles to the south over an aqueduct. And by the time it arrived, it was lukewarm. And one of their neighboring cities, Hierapolis, had a hot spring water that was valuable for its medicinal uh, effects. And uh, um, in its journey to Laodicea, it lost some of the heat and consequently some of the medicinal value by the time it arrived. And the nearby Colossae um, had cool, life-giving water that was refreshing as a beverage. And so when Christ wishes that the Laodiceans were either cold or hot, I really think he's talking about their usefulness. You know, cold water is useful when you're thirsty. Hot water on a a cold day can make you a a nice beverage, okay? So when you're hot or cold, you are useful. I don't think that, you know, some commentators say, well, the cold means that they, he'd rather you be spiritually cold than, you know, um, um, so that you declare one way or the other, that you're not just lukewarm. There's nothing good about taking a mouthful of lukewarm water. You just kind of go... And that's exactly the picture that Christ gives us in this letter, okay? I don't think Christ ever wants us to be spiritually cold. I think it's a picture of usefulness. And cold water is useful, hot water is useful, lukewarm water is not useful. But if their uselessness was not bad enough, you know, they really compound it by deceiving themselves about their own condition. They think they're rich, prosperous, and in need of nothing, And as we've seen, they're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. And, you know, it seems to me that their lack of economic need has blinded them to their deep spiritual needs. Does that sound familiar? Anybody say, hey, that sounds like the city of Dallas. You know, we're a prosperous town. And we think, you know, we've got it. We don't need anything to help us. And yet, um, let's look at what uh, um, the Lord says. And we can all do this if we live in isolation. And that's why we push living in biblical community where people are willing to tell you that you're poor, blind, and naked. Okay? That's what biblical community is all about. You know, I, I don't need anybody patting me on the back. I need somebody to tell me, you know, uh, help me get downwind of myself. Okay? That's what biblical community is all about. And so where the Laodiceans thought themselves well off, that was what they really lacked. So they thought they were a rich, prosperous banking center, but as we see, they needed true riches from Christ. And what uh, church was it that was described as rich? Which one? Suffering Smyrna. The one that was suffering and that was... Uh, remember that Greek word for poverty that were in des- in abject poverty? They're the ones that Christ described as being rich. And this church thought it was rich, and yet they are poor, blind, and naked. But they need the true riches that come from Christ like the Smyrnans had. And even though they produced a famous black wool, they needed the white garments that represent the righteousness of God that only he can provide. And they were known for their special eye salve, but in fact they were spiritually blind. 
and they needed the Sabbath spiritual discernment so that they could truly see as the faithful and true witness. Remember how Christ was described in this letter? They need that salve so that, um, that he provides so that they could see as he sees. But, you know, to me, the greatest thing about this letter is that Christ still offers hope to this church that is poor, blind, and naked. He loves them, and he disciplines them. And, you know, the fact that they're reproved and disciplined is evidence that they're true children of God. You know, um, I'm going to read Hebrews 12, 5 through 10, so you may want to turn there. But it's like my old football coach used to say to me, said, hey, Crotty, as long as we're still yelling at you, there's hope. Okay? <laughs> and so Christ um, was uh, disciplining these guys because there was still hope for them. And Hebrews 12, 5 through 10 says, And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My, uh, my son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you've endured. God is treating you as sons. It's a mark of sonship. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you're left without discipline in which all have participated, then you're illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we've had earthly fathers who've disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us, the father, earthly fathers disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he, our heavenly father, disciplines us for our good that we might share his holiness. That white garments, the righteousness of God that we might share. All right, so um, to the one that conquers, uh, Christ makes the best offer I think that he can make, to sit with him on his throne. And so for Laodicea, think lukewarm Laodicea. And as a summary of the seven churches, you know, Church 1, Ephesus, and Church 7 receive the worst sort of rebukes. And to me, those are the ones who are in the gravest danger. And Churches 2 and 6, um, that's Smyrna and Philadelphia, they're both in good shape. They did not receive a rebuke. And the ones in the middle had some good and some bad. So we aspire to be like Smyrna in Philadelphia. Okay, and so what does this mean for the church today? What does Christ want us to be as the church? Well, he wants us to patiently endure, and he, just like the Ephesians. Uh, he wants us to be faithful in suffering like Smyrna. He wants us to be spiritually discerning, not distracted by false teaching or by uh, being tolerant of evil in its midst like uh, Pergamum and Thyatira. He wants us to be spiritually alive and walking with Christ, led by the Spirit that gives life, like Sardis. And he wants us to be uh, holding fast to biblical teaching, like the church in Philadelphia. And he wants us to be useful and in constant uh, fellowship. I keep saying like the church. Uh, you know, this is where you get that picture Patiently enduring, faithful in suffering, spiritually discerning, spiritually alive, holding fast to biblical teaching. He wants us to be useful uh, 
uh, and in con- constant fellowship with Him. And so what does this mean for us? Okay? Have you lost your first love? Are you willing? Do you still have that passion for sharing Christ with others? Are you willing to patiently endure tribulation and poverty and even slander? Are you using Scripture to help you judge, you know, the teaching you hear? Are you like the Bereans, willing to uh, search the Scripture and see if these things are so and use that for um, um, uh, as a, a standard of truth for analyzing the news and whatnot that you hear? Are you deceiving yourself about how you're doing and who you're really following? Are you holding fast? Or are you uh, uh, being lukewarm in the way that you're following Christ? Let me close with a uh, little story here. Um, And my wife will be surprised to see that there is a picture of my wife. Okay? And... um, you know, when you talk about uh, your first love and whatnot, um, it makes me think about uh, um, the church in Ephesus. And there Paul was writing to them, and um, the thing he was exhorting them to do was to continue in their love for each other and their love for Christ and to continue to be a witness to him. And 30 years later... He had lost, they had lost that first love. Okay, and so my bride over here and I have been married for 32 years. And they've been pretty great. And it's all because of her. Um, but it's not been perfect. And I have not been the perfect husband. And, you know, even sometimes she may not be quite the perfect wife, although most of the time she is. At least she tells me that. No, not really. Um... But I think that, you know, uh, a couple of years ago, uh, we went and did re-engage together, even though, you know, our marriage was pretty great. And, you know, they say re-engage is for those whose marriage is, you know, in negative numbers or zero and you want to get it to a one or two, or it's for marriages that are an eight and want to be better. And I'd put our marriage in that sort of category. But when I think about loving someone for 30-plus years, and I think about how this church loved Christ and lost that first love. You know, she was out of town this week for one night, and, you know, both the dog and I were lost, okay? <laughs> you know, I think I, I uh, ate about uh, twice in the course of that. I can stand to uh, not eat, so it wasn't any big deal. Um, but, you know, things just aren't right when she's not around. And the uh, opportunity to love her over the course of these 32 years has been fantastic. And so, gang, my encouragement from that story to each of us is to hang in there. And how much more important and vital will it be to continue to love our Savior 30 years from now, to continue to give an account for the hope that's within you, to be willing to uh, tell others about him, And, you know, I think about the richness of my life from having shared life with Sarah Crotty for 32 years. And I think how much richer my life will be 30 years from now um, if I'm still around um, in continuing to walk with Christ. And that's what he calls us to, okay?
That's what he calls us to. And so what steps will you take to deepen your love for Christ this week? Will you spend time with him? You know, one of the things I've done uh, um, not always well, but uh, I've continued to do is to study her and to want to know her and to want to know um, what makes her tick, what makes her happy. And one of the greatest things I got out of reengage was just a real recognition that, hey, you know, my job as a husband is to love her as Christ loves the church and to want to serve her and put her needs above my needs. And so your walk with Christ um, is something that you have to study. You have to study him so that you'll know him when we see him. And will you do what he asks us to do in his word? And will you tell others about him? Next week, we'll be talking about the fireworks. And so we'll be studying Revelation 4 through 16. Those are organized around three series of judgments, seven each, the seal, trumpet, and bowl judgments. And uh, um, something to notice is the pattern in this whole section, um, these uh, 12 or 13 chapters, that there is a pattern of grace, then judgment. And isn't that the way our God does? Grace, then judgment. All right, gang, it's been fun. I'm going to stick around again. Um, And so if you have questions, come on up. I'd love to uh, um, uh, talk to you about them. And uh, we've got some more ice cream treats for you outside. And let me pray for us, and we'll uh, be dismissed. Lord, thanks for the uh, privilege of uh, studying your word. And so, Father... um, May we be ones who say we want to deepen our love for your son. We want to spend time with him. We want to know more about him. And we will do what he asks us to do in his word. And we will tell others about him. And so help us do that this week, Father, as we celebrate the 4th of July, as we celebrate the freedom we enjoy in this country. uh, Father, let us remember the spiritual freedom uh, that your son purchased uh, on the battlefield that was the cross. And so we're grateful not only for the freedom we have in this country, purchased with the uh, blood of heroes, but we're uh, eternally grateful for the salvation that we have through the blood of your Son. So thanks for this time. Thanks for each one here. In Christ's name, amen.